Welcome to this podcast by The Rocks Church. We hope you find it challenging and inspiring. For more information, visit therocks.church. Well, good morning, beautiful people. How are you all today? I hope you're traveling well. It's wonderful to see you all on this absolutely gorgeous first Sunday morning of winter. It's a chilly one out there, um, but at least it's warm in here. In fact, I was, I was driving uh, somewhere yesterday morning. I was speaking at a conference, and I was out on the road pretty early. And uh, as I was driving along, I, I went past a hearse, and there was a coffin inside the hearse. And I looked over, and I thought to myself, well, I'm cold, but at least I'm not that cold. <laughs> right? I'd rather be cold and tired than dead, right? As they say, every day above ground is a good day. So I hope you're having a good day, and I hope you're glad to be here, and hope you're feeling thankful for all the good things God has given us. Take a look around you. How many brilliant, beautiful people we get to call family, so many great friends, the opportunity to be here. Of course, this is Pentecost Sunday, and it's the day we kind of reflect on the reality of the gift of the person of the Holy Spirit poured out 2,000 years ago in a new, fresh, powerful, life-changing way that makes it possible for each and every one of us to receive the very presence and power of God in us. And in fact, uh, in July, we're going to be doing a, a series on the person of the Holy Spirit, which is going to be brilliant. So we have so much to be thankful for today, and I'm so glad that we're together. And uh, on behalf of everyone in the room, I want to say a big warm welcome as well to everyone joining us online from wherever you are. We're delighted to have you with us and uh, glad that you can join us for the conversation. So if you are here today for the first time, we're in week two of this new series entitled Titled Entrusted, and we're talking all about the call of God on our lives to be faithful and fruitful stewards of all that God has entrusted to us, everything from our resources to our relationships and everything in between. What does it look like to faithfully and wisely and lovingly and responsibly manage those things in a way that they serve others and bless God? How do we be faithful stewards? And after my introductory message last week on responsibility, um, I was reminded of something somebody sent me that uh, I thought was really clever and a little funny, and it speaks really um, uh, beautifully into this. And it's called, Whose Job Is It? Whose Job Is It? So this is a little story about four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about it because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought that anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. In the end, everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. <laughs> Brilliant, right? Be somebody, okay, who takes responsibility. And today I want to talk about a subject that's really close to my heart and something that doesn't get a lot of airtime in churches, despite being one of the most pressing issues facing our world today. And the question that I want to ask is, whose job is it to care for the environment? Whose job is it to care for the environment? Now, you are aware, as I am, that in our world today, there is a lot of ongoing conversation about all sorts of environmental concern, global warming, climate change, species loss, and a whole range of ecological challenges facing the world in the 21st century. And sometimes the sheer volume of information and the conflicting news reports uh, leaves you feeling a little overwhelmed. It's kind of hard to know what's true, what's real, what's right, who can we trust. And in the midst of all of that, you and I as followers of Jesus, if we are followers of Jesus here today, have got to ask ourselves, well, how do we respond? Does this concern us? Do all of these matters matter to God? 
Does the Bible have anything to say about them? And is it possible that maybe Christian faith could potentially be part of the solution? Now, I've been talking about this issue for over 15 years, and I've realized that when the subject of environmentalism and Christian faith comes up in conversation, very often it's, it's met with a mixed response. Sure, there are some people who are instantly and like enthusiastically um, glad about the idea of Christians being at the forefront of responding to these environmental challenges, but the vast majority of people tend to react with some degree of concern. Uh, some sense of caution, sometimes indifference and sometimes outright resistance. And I've realized that the objections that people raise to the idea of Christians being involved in environmental issues usually falls into one of four categories. So the first objection is this. They say, well, Tim, it's kind of depressing. Like really, who wants to talk about climate change, global warming, water shortages, and food scarcity? It's also doom and gloom, Right. And when you think about the scope and the scale of the environmental challenges facing our world today, it's very easy to feel overwhelmed. You can kind of uh, be f uh, left feeling like you're kind of throwing spitballs at a hurricane. Like what difference does my effort really make given the scope and scale of all of this challenge? And so sometimes it's easier just to bury your head in the sand and to just ignore it because it's so depressing. Other people say, all right, well, if not depressing, it's certainly demeaning. And by that I mean there's a concern here that we might be reducing humanity's value if we take rights and resources allocated for human beings and we assign them to non-human life forms, even if those life forms are sentient. If we take time and energy and attention and we give it to uh, non-sentient or sentient life forms other than human life forms, are we in some way taking away from humanity's unique place and purpose in the divine scheme of things. Like if, if I take $10 million and I give $10 million to preserving a rainforest in Borneo in order to save habitat for an orangutan, well, that's $10 million that's not going to starving children in Africa. So am I robbing those 10 children from something that is rightfully theirs or should be theirs as a priority if I give it to some non-human life form? So there's, a, there's an ethical question there. All right. Uh, some people say, well, all right, if not depressing and demeaning, then it's certainly dangerous. Okay? If we as Christians get involved in environmental affairs, we potentially expose ourselves to some kind of ungodly or unholy or unrighteous influence. And that's because many Christians um, have a perception of environmentalism that has all sorts of negative connotations attached to it. So if I say the word environmentalist or environmentalism or greenie or something like that, then, then your mind instantly conjures up images of, you know, hippies dancing semi-naked in the forest around a fire at night, you know, eating tree bark and drinking mineral water or whatever it is, right? We tend to associate environmentalism with certain things. And sometimes we perceive those things to be threatening. And so some Christians associate environmentalism with like radical, extreme, left-wing political ideology. Or they associate it with pagan spirituality or with new age philosophy. And so there's a concern. If we as followers of Jesus get involved with these environmental issues, are we going to open ourselves up to some kind of ungodly, unholy, or unsanctified kind of influence? And of course, the worst case scenario there is that we all end up worshiping the earth mother goddess Gaia or something like that. All right. Still others say, all right, well, look, if not uh, depressing and uh, demeaning, and dangerous, then certainly it's distracting. And this is the fourth objection. They say, well, if we as Christians give time, energy, and attention 
getting involved in environmental issues, then we're taking that time, energy, and attention away from the main game. And for us as the church, the main game is to save souls for eternity. And of course, that objection assumes a very narrow understanding of what the mission of God is in the world, what the mission of God's people is in the world. And it assumes a very narrow definition of the gospel and of salvation. But nevertheless, that concern is there. And so I say all of that to say that if you're sitting here today and you're thinking or feeling any one of those four concerns, I just want to encourage you to take a deep breath and just relax because you're in good company. And there are many others who think like you think and feel what you feel, and it's okay. And I'm hoping that by the end of this message, you will at least be open to the idea, if not fully persuaded, that for us as followers of Jesus, there's actually no reason to be afraid. There's no need for concern. Because getting involved in environmental issues is neither depressing nor demeaning nor dangerous nor distracting. In fact, as followers of Jesus, you and I have an incredibly important role to play in responding to these issues. And I believe that you will see that as we journey through this together. Now, of course, any conversation about faith and the environment or Christians and their involvement in environmental affairs must begin with Scripture. It has to be biblically based and theologically grounded. And so when we turn our attention to the Bible and we ask ourselves, does the Bible have anything to say about this? The truth of the matter is it actually has a lot to say about it. And there are four key big bedrock kind of theological perspectives that the Bible offers and calls us to embrace concerning how we perceive the planet and how we relate to it. Four big theological ideas that God would have shape our understanding of how we see the earth and then consequently how we understand our relationship to the earth. So I just want to highlight them and say a little bit about each. All right. So number one, the first is this idea of earth as creation. Earth is creation. By that I simply mean earth is not an accident. Earth is not here by coincidence. Earth is not the product of randomness. Earth is here by divine design. Earth is here because God willed it into being. Because it is an essential part of God's plan and purpose. Everything that you see in nature mountains, rivers, streams, lakes, plants, animals. I mean, everything from the farthest galaxy down to the tiniest molecule, all of it, all of it was dreamed up in the heart and mind of God conceptually before He brought it into reality. Friends, that is a stunning thought, that all of it was designed by God with intention and with purpose and meaning and brought into reality by God. And of course, the Bible attests to that fact from the very first line in Scripture, the opening statement in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God saw all that He created, and He saw that it was good. Right? And of course, God as creator stands over and above His creation. He is separate from His creation, which is why we worship the creator, not the creation. In Eastern worldviews and philosophies, you will know that very often uh, God is considered to be simply an expression or an essence that is permeated through nature. And so all of nature is in some sense an expression of God, which is why in certain Eastern religions you can worship a stone or the sun or a cow or a blade of grass. Because all of it is an expression of God, but not so in a Christian worldview. A Christian worldview sees the Creator as over and above the creation, as distinct from the creation, and yet He has a loving relationship with the creation. 
And so earth is part of that creation, part of God's intention, part of God's design, and part of God's plan and purpose. And that leads us to the second big theological idea, and that is this idea of um, creation as revelation. Creation as revelation. In other words, God is telling us something about himself through the things he has made. God has revealed his presence as the creator, and he has revealed something of his nature and his character. In fact, David, the Old Testament psalmist uh, in Psalm 19, uh, said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the earth declares his handiwork. Day to day, utter speech, and night to night reveals knowledge, and there's nowhere in all of creation where their voice is not heard. In other words, David is saying poetically there that all of creation reveals God. All of it is a testament to his glory and his power and his majesty. And over in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle, who penned so much of our New Testament, picks up this idea and listen to what he says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. He says, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. And through everything God has made, they can clearly see His eternal power and His divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Wow, do you see what Paul's saying there? He's saying, listen, God has so profoundly and clearly revealed Himself through the things He has made that not only can we tell there is a Creator, but we can tell what kind of a Creator He is. We can tell something about His divine nature, His personality, His characteristics. In other words, there is great spiritual value in literally stopping to smell the roses, floating on your back in the ocean and looking up at the sky. Lying in a field at night and staring up at the heavens and looking at the stars and asking yourself the question, what does all of this tell us about God? Because it's all telling us something. And if you consider for a moment the fact that, you know, there isn't a single fingerprint that is the same as another. No two eye patterns that are the same. No two voice patterns that are the same. No sunrise or sunset that, that is the same. It's a testament to the fact that God is infinitely creative. He's an artist. And yet at the same time, God is an engineer. He's an architect. He's a designer. You look at the balance and the symmetry and the order and the fine-tuning of the universe, and it all points to something of the nature of our God. C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian philosopher and author, said it beautifully. He said, imagine one day you were walking down a beach, just a pristine, beautiful stretch of clear beach on an early morning, and you came across an ornate, elaborate sandcastle, a large sandcastle. He said, you would be a fool for concluding that the wind and the waves had brought that in overnight. If you said to yourself, wow, look at what the tide created overnight, he said, you would be a fool, right? No, you would look at that sandcastle, and you would look at the design and the intention and, and the elaboration, and you would, you would conclude there's a mind behind the design. Somebody created this. Somebody built it. Somebody fashioned it. And he said, the same is true of creation. You cannot look at the scope and the scale of the cosmos, at the macrocosm and the microcosm, at the infinite creativity, at the balance and the fine-tuning of the universe, and not conclude there must be a mind behind the system. It is impossible to be the product of randomness. And so creation bears witness to the existence of the Creator, and planet Earth is part of that creation. And so in that sense, friends, the Earth is sacred. The earth is not divine, only God is divine, but the earth is sacred because the earth has been set apart to serve a particular purpose. And part of that purpose is to reveal God 
to us. So earth is creation. And then the third big theological idea that we find in Scripture, that God would have us embrace in order to shape our understanding of our relationship to planet earth, is this idea of earth as God's possession. Earth as God's possession. In other words, the earth belongs to the Lord. The earth does not belong to BHP Billiton, Fortescue, or Rio Tinto. The earth does not belong to any nation state or local government. The earth does not belong to any ethnic group. It doesn't belong to Sea Shepherd or to the Sierra Club or to Greenpeace. The earth belongs to the Lord and everything in it. He has ownership rights. We have stewardship responsibilities. He lays claim to the earth because he created it and because he sustains it. That's why in Deuteronomy 10 verse 14, it says, The Lord, to the Lord your God, belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. It is all his. He owns it. And yet he has entrusted it to us to manage it. Think about it this way. Imagine for a moment you had a friend uh, who owned a Ferrari. And uh, this friend of yours came and said, hey, I'm traveling to Europe. I'm going away for six weeks. Will you take care of my Ferrari and handed you the keys? What a great friend. Um, I would appreciate an introduction if you have a friend like that. Right? Now, I guarantee you anything that you would take that Ferrari and you would take super good care of it. Right? You're not going to take it out into the suburbs and go and do wheel spins and burnouts. Right? You're not going to leave used McDonald packets on the back seat or on the floor. When you go to the shops, you're going to go park it in the far end of the parking lot away from everyone else so nobody dings it with a trolley or opens the door on it. You're going to take super good care of that Ferrari because you know how valuable it is and you know it's not yours. It belongs to your friend and he's counting on you to look after it. And of course, when he comes back after six weeks and comes to collect, you're going to hand back that, that um, you know, set of keys and that petrol tank's going to be full and that car's going to be clean, Right? And then you're going to go back to driving your 1992 Holden Barina with 350,000 Ks on the clock. And I guarantee you when you get back into that 1992 Holden Barina, you're not going to worry too much, right, about where you park it and how you drive it and what you leave on the back seat because it probably doesn't have any intrinsic value anymore and it's yours to do with whatever you want. And here's the problem, friends. We have treated the earth like the 1992 Holden Barina rather than the Ferrari. We have failed to recognize the intrinsic value in the earth and the fact that it is not ours to do with as we please. It has been entrusted to us by God who lays claim to it and who owns it. So the earth is God's possession. And then fourthly and finally, the fourth idea that the, the Bible encourages us to embrace in order to shape our thinking about our relationship to planet earth is this idea of earth as our habitation. In other words, earth is our home. And currently there are 7.8, almost 7.9 billion beautiful, precious human beings who call planet Earth home. And friends, I cannot, I cannot say this more clearly or strongly enough. You need to lean in and listen really closely because this is going to be one of the most important things I say this morning. I have often, often heard people say, you know what, Tim? I care about people. I care about people because God cares about people and I care about what God cares about. So I care about people. Like, I don't care about birds and bees and flowers and trees and turtles and dolphins. and I don't care about that stuff because God cares about people. And so I care about people because I care about what God cares about. Well, let me tell you what I think is wrong with that way of thinking. First of all, I think it is fundamentally flawed 
Because if we're going to be faithful to the revelation of God in both Old and New Testament, we have to acknowledge that God cares about all creation. Yes, humanity has a, a, a unique place in the heart of God, but humanity does not have an exclusive place. In fact, in Psalm 145 verse 9, the psalmist said, God, your compassion is over all the works of your hands. You are loving toward all that you have made. Jesus said, hey, if a sparrow, just one sparrow that's worth less than two copper coins falls to the ground, your heavenly Father knows about it. That is how intimate God's knowledge is of the entirety of His creation. Uh, over in Colossians chapter 1, Paul the Apostle goes to great lengths to explain to us that the death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary and His resurrection was not just for the reconciliation of human beings to God, but for the reconciliation of all things. Literally the entire cosmos. In other words, there is a cosmological dimension to God's redemptive mission in the world. He's not just out to save human beings. He's out to rescue all creation from the effects of sin and death. And so God cares deeply about creation. And if we're going to be faithful to the revelation of Scripture, we have to acknowledge He cares about creation in its entirety. But friends, secondly, the reason why I think that way of thinking that I articulated um, is, is, is wrong is because it fails to recognize an almost blindingly obvious truth. And that is simply that human beings do not live in a vacuum. We live on planet Earth. This is our home. And we depend on this planet, not only for quality of life, but for life itself. In fact, all known life in the universe exists inside this tiny little sliver of habitable space called the biosphere which is relatively speaking about as thick as a layer of varnish on a cricket ball. That's how thin it is. And it's made up of the Earth's near surface atmosphere and a thin layer of the Earth's near surface crust. And all known life in the universe depends on that biosphere, not only for quality of life, but for life itself. So you can't tell me that you care about people, but you don't care about the quality of air that people need to breathe in order to survive. You can't tell me you care about people, but then you don't care about the quality of water that they need to drink in order to sustain their existence. You can't say you care about people, but then you don't care about the quality of the, the soil that they need to till in order to sustain their subsistence living. Friends, if you genuinely love people, you are going to care about the environment on which people depend, not only for quality of life, but for life itself, right? And that's why uh, we have to recognize that as the only creatures created in the image of God, human beings have been given this unique responsibility to steward the earth and to manage it in a way that is wise and loving and responsible for all earth's inhabitants. And that is clearly articulated in the opening chapters of Genesis. Listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 to 28. It says, So God created human beings in His own image. Both male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. That word govern literally means to manage or to oversee. Govern it and reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. I want to point out that that includes mice, rats, spiders, and insects. Right? If you're one of those people who uh, kind of is nervous about spiders and insects, listen, don't call your spouse when you find one in the bathroom next time. Just take authority over it in Jesus' name and cast it out. All right? you, you have authority 
over all those crawling things. Goes on in Genesis 2 verse 15 to say, Then God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Right, friends? Clearly, God has given humanity the responsibility to steward creation in a way that is wise, loving, productive, creative, but sustainable and responsible. And here's the point. Listen closely. If caring for creation is a human vocation, it automatically becomes a Christian vocation. Because not every human is a Christian, but every Christian is a human. At least the vast majority of them. There's a few that I've met that I'm not too sure about, right? But every Christian is a human. And so if caring for creation is a human vocation, it automatically becomes a Christian vocation. And as Christians, we should be the best example of what it is to be human. The best example of what it is to live life under the authority of God and take the responsibility that He's given us seriously. And so friends, at the end of the day, this, this concept or idea of caring for creation can be brought all the way back to the great command that Jesus gave us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. First and foremost, caring for creation is an act of love for God because it's obedience to God. It's obedience to the cultural mandate that God gave us as human beings. And Jesus said, hey, if you love me, you will obey me. Right? The best way for us to demonstrate our love for God is not our passion in worship. As much as I love being passionate in worship, the best way to show your love for God is to obey Him. And so obeying the cultural mandate to care for creation is an act of love toward God. But friends, beyond that, it's also an act of love for our neighbors. Only it recognizes that our neighbors are not just the people who live down the street from us. Our neighbors are the people who live downhill and the people who live downstream and the people who live downwind and the people who live down time. In other words, caring for creation requires that we expand our understanding of who our neighbors are and recognize that very often it's the most vulnerable of our neighbors, the poorest and the marginalized and the oppressed who are often the most at risk when we aren't faithful, responsible, sustainable stewards of our environment. And so at the very heart of this call is a call to love God and love others. Now, friends, I'm conscious of the fact that this morning we haven't even begun to talk about the scope and the scale of the environmental challenges facing us today and what the true nature of those ecological problems are. We, we haven't even begun to talk about the practical things that we can do as, as individuals and, and collectively as a faith family to ensure that we are part of the solution and not part of the problem. But here's, here's the thing. We have to start with the heart, and we have to recognize that this is first a theological issue and a spiritual issue before it's a social issue or an, uh, an economic issue or a political issue. This is first and foremost a personal issue of the heart. And I want to finish this morning with a quote from a man by the name of Gus Speth, who is a really well-known um, American lawyer and environmental advocate. And I think he said it so well. Listen to how he uh, articulated this. He says, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and a spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. 
That is so true, friends. I think he hit the nail on the head. At the heart of this issue is the issue of the heart. And if you don't believe in your heart that earth matters to God and therefore should matter to us, then it doesn't matter about the scope or scale of the environmental challenges. It doesn't matter what practical steps we can and should take. You and I have to first hold deeply this conviction that earth does matter. It matters to God and it should matter to us. And as Christians called by God to be His representatives here on earth, it is up to us to step up and to step out and to begin to lead the way and to begin to show the way so that you and I are part of the solution and not part of the problem. Caring for creation is nothing less than love for God and love for our neighbor. And according to Jesus, there is nothing more important than that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more great resources and to keep yourself up to date, head to our website. Visit therocks.church.com.